It's like springtime, isn't it? Goodness. But we will take it. Welcome again to Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're getting into uh, Romans 6, maybe even Romans 7 tonight. Um, we just kind of dipped our toe in the water for Romans 6 last week. Uh, we'll review quickly that, uh, and then we'll move on. But before we do anything, we'll pray, and then we'll continue. Dear Heavenly Father, we've come together tonight in your name to learn more about you because we are edified by our knowledge about you, Jesus, and, and Spirit also. I pray that you always give us clarity because our bodies and our, our minds and, and we're, our schedules, we're just so busy all the time, and, and we don't want to be busy. So it's good to sometimes just stop and pause, even for an hour on a Tuesday evening, and just breathe and uh, set all of our cares aside, at least for a little while. Focus on you again, because that's what's important. That's what really gets us through. Help us to understand it's not really about how much I can do to fix all the problems in my life. I need you every step of the way. So as we uh, enjoy our time this evening, I pray that you have your way and always be glorified by our fellowship and our love for you and, and our interest in what you have through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, last week we ended on uh, a few verses into chapter 6, and I'll recap quickly what that was where we left off. It was... Uh, and I like to always go back a little bit, so I guess we can just shoot back to Romans 5 for a moment, <clears throat> just to let us know where we came from. Romans 5, we, talk about, we talked about how you're either, the idea of you're either on Judgment Day represented by the flesh, you, people say you're in Adam, you're, you're, you're uh, presenting your own quote-unquote righteous works before God, and, and those are judged. And the, the word says many places that we, our righteous works will never be enough. And so those unbelievers will only have their own righteous acts to present before the Lord in his courtroom to be declared righteous or unrighteous. And so if you're in Adam, if you're in the flesh, Adam just means man, <clears throat> uh, it's not going to be good enough. And so, but if you're in Christ, it will be good enough because you don't present your own works on judgment that you present the works of Christ. Like we said Christ didn't just live for, he didn't just die for us, he lived for us. And so we get to, as heirs, our inheritance is to reap what he has earned for us through his work and his life, sinless life, and his, his uh, infinite, infinitely sufficient uh, sacrifice on the cross. He gives that to us through faith, and it is enough. And so we talked about that term was called. Uh, federal headship, like he's our representative, either Christ is representing us as our federal head, or Adam, just mankind. And so we, and that'll never be enough. So we've come there, and we talk about how Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith, and he wasn't circumcised yet, and he, there was no law to follow yet of Moses, and, but he was still considered righteous, saved, uh, and he would be declared innocent in, the, in a court of God because of his faith. And that shows us that it doesn't have to do with outward things. It has to do with the heart position toward God. And so Paul's making these points. And so, and he told us, oops, let me go back quickly and read that last part in Romans 5. So he says in Romans 5, the last portion here, uh, verse 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that was in the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned, so one act of righteousness 
this is Jesus now, leads to justification, that's salvation, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, in, reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we talked about how we inherited sin from Adam because we talked about how we consider, and it was uh, the biblical era's way of uh, thinking about this was to be in Adam's loins because we all come from him, Adam and Eve. That's where we all come from. And so by proxy, you could say, his sin was imputed to us. We're sinful because our father Adam sinned. We're always, uh, what's the word? We're always biased to sin now. You know, if you just let a, a, a child grow up and never teach him right or wrong, you don't have to really teach a, a child right from wrong. They know they shouldn't be taking the last cookie. For some reason, some, somehow they know. And they know, you know, you catch a kid, a little kid doing something, a toddler, catch him in the act, and they have that look on their face, and they just know they're in trouble. Well, how? You didn't give them a, they can't even speak maybe. They're a year and a half old. And you say their name, Nate. And you look, he knows something's wrong. I did something. Uh, it's just in us. We, we understand that. So we're always going to do, we're always going to be drawn toward that sinful way. It's in our, it's our sinful state that needs to be uh, redeemed. And that comes from the sin of Adam. But in the, by the same token, we didn't live a perfect life, but Christ gives that to us. So it's, he's, Paul here is saying, through one man came death because of sin. Because what are the wages of sin but death? Yes. That's, that's, I didn't. I just got a new phone today, and I don't know how to silence it. But anyway, everything is awesome. That's the ringtone. Got to have a positive attitude, right? So he, he's saying that we didn't live the perfect life, but it's as if we lived the perfect life because Christ offers that to us free of charge through our faith. We didn't sin in the garden. That's what Adam gave us. See how the difference, the contrast there. We want to be in Christ, not in Adam when we die. Okay, so we're going into Romans 6, and I always do that because there were no chapters or verses. Paul was just writing, and he kept writing, and now we're in chapter 6, what we call chapter 6. And so the topical heading here is dead to sin, alive to God. Verse 1 in chapter 6. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now, he says this because he's anticipating the reader's retort because he said, hey, grace overcomes all your sin. So then the hearer would say, well, should we then just keep sinning and not worry about it since we're covered by grace anyway? And he says, of course not, by no means. Uh, does anyone have a different uh, translation that doesn't say by no means? What does it say? In verse 6, and a ver or actually uh, verse 2, the first few words of verse 2 in chapter God forbid. Okay. Anyone else have anything different? By no means. God forbid. Uh, let me just read a couple. Because you get the idea. He's, say, he's using in the Greek the strongest way to say, of course not. Uh, let's see what the Christian Standard Bible says. Absolutely not. There's that. It's certainly not. Certainly not. See the point? You know, we're getting, we understand. He's, 
he's kind of coming out of the formal way of reading to the common vernacular and saying, that's ridiculous. Of course we wouldn't do that. Anyone in Christ wouldn't do that. They don't say, if you're in Christ, you don't say, well, how much can I sin and still be saved? That's not something a truly saved person would even say. Our hearts have been changed. Our desires have been changed. So he's trying to get this across to us in Romans 6. So verse 2 says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? When it says here, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What does it mean to have died to sin? He'll uh, expound on this idea, but keep that in mind as we go forward. Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, now that's a good thing, yay, we're baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into his death too. Again, the previous verse says we died to sin. In the second, or yeah, verse 2, we died to sin. There's that death idea. In verse 3, we're baptized into his death. Something's dying here. Verse 4, another death word. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism, again, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So it sounds here like something's dying and then something's coming to life. Does it sound familiar in our Christian heritage? We talk about putting the old man to death. What is the old man? What does that mean anyway? Have you heard that? The old man? It's the man or woman we used to be before Christ. That's the old man when we hear that term. That person died. I don't know if some of you have been... Christian, since you're babies, you know, little babies or children don't really remember when you came to Christ or if you came to Christ in the middle of your lives and you realize how different you are now and your friends realize how different you are now, they might say about you, you're a different person. And would you agree, those of you who midlife found Jesus? So that's the idea here. <clears throat> Something dies and then some, we're brought to new life. It's, new, it's a newness of life. So let's keep that in mind as we go. Verse 5. For if it for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I'm trying to silence the phone. I don't know how to do it. Someone you just have to throw out the window. Oh, is that how it works? <laughs> you just have to throw out the window. Okay, I got it all the way down. Let's see how that, if that works. So here's the, you can see a chain now. Part one in the chain, there's death, something dies. Part two, there's newness of life. And then part three, there's a resurrection. It talks about the old man dying. And baptism really is a picture of death. They call it the watery grave. The picture of, of baptism, you know, you go down. You go down into the watery grave, they say. It's a picture of death, the old man dying. And then being, as Paul says, you're resurrected, coming out of the water to a new life. You're a new person now. We don't believe as, as Protestants that the water is doing anything. It's a symbol of what has already happened in our lives. And we're professing it to whoever will be there to, to see it publicly, a public proclamation of this new life in Christ. And so he says, if we're in Christ, we've died with Christ. The old man died. His fleshly body died. So our fleshly desire, desiring body has died if we're in Christ. And then we're also buried with him. It's, you're not coming back. That person is never going to be raised again, that old person. And now we're given new life. We come, so we're a new being. 
we want different things. We talk differently. We, we do different things. We, you know, hate sin when we used to love sin. We're different, totally different. Because we're united with him. Okay, verse oh, 6. For we know now that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, that old man, might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. This is bondage, a bondage word. We spoke on Sunday. For those of you who weren't there, I'll quickly hit this point. It says here in verse uh, 6, so that the body ruled by sin, that's us and our desires, fleshly desires before we come to Christ, that body might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. We talked about how we always feel like we have the, the freest will ever. We just can do whatever we want. I can pick up this uh, cup of coffee. I can, I can you know, do whatever I want, walk over here, walk over there, have pepperoni pizza instead of sausage pizza. I'm deciding all these things. My body has free will. But our wills aren't as free as we think they are before we come to Jesus because of the fact that it's not a level playing field. We're always, like I said, kind of leaning toward the sin way, the sin decision. Before we come to Christ, when he makes us a new person, he gives us more freedom to say no to that sin. I don't want to do that anymore. I used to always do that. And I'm not doing it anymore. <clears throat> so we're released from that bondage to always kind of, you know, nine times out of ten, do the sinful thing. Now he says, no, you don't have to. You're probably going to at some point, but it's not going to be 90% of the time anymore. He knows we'll still sin on our way to heaven, hopefully less and less. But we're not going to live perfect lives. He understands that. But hopefully it'll be maybe, you know, after five years, six years, it'll be six, seven times out of ten, maybe two, three times out of ten. And that's called sanctification. We're becoming more like Christ. But it won't ever be zero out of a hundred times. It's just our thoughts, our minds. We're just fighting this fleshly battle every day. And we talk about that in Romans 7. And that's not a bad thing, it's just nature. We have the Spirit of God living in us, and that Spirit is against sin, but our fleshly body wants to sin, so we struggle. But that keeps us close to the Lord. It keeps us walking closely and depending on Him every single day. And so, now those chains have been released from us, and we're not enslaved to sin anymore like we used to be. Think about it this way before we move on to verse 8. If you put a dog in front of a prime rib and a piece of broccoli and you, you set it right here in the front of the room and you, you just equally spaced apart, let the dog in a uh, hundred times, what's he going to eat a hundred times? He's going to eat the steak. It's, it's, why is that? Because of his nature. Why would he ever eat the broccoli? I don't think dogs like broccoli, right? I don't think so. Humans don't even like broccoli. <laughs> So they always choose the steak because of their nature. He says, I'm a dog. I'm going to eat a steak. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's like how we are with sin. You put tempting things before an unsaved person, and you put a Bible study on the other side, nine times out of ten, ten times out of ten, the unsaved person who doesn't love Christ is going to say, I'll, I'll take, I'm not going to go to the Bible study, you know, I'll take the tempting thing because of our sinful nature. So now that we're in Christ, he breaks that. And our, our spirit, the spirit within us grows stronger and stronger. And sooner or later, we're like, you know, I, I know I want that. My body wants that thing, but my spirit doesn't want it. So I need to go over here. So that's how it works. Okay, so verse 8, <clears throat> he says, Now if we died with Christ, again, he's really showing us we are united with Christ. If we're in Christ, we died with him, we were raised with him, we were buried with him. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. 
So don't think that just because you're in Christ, you're a Christian, you get all the bad things. There's resurrection coming. We're going to have that too. Or vice versa. Don't just think you get all the good things and you don't have to worry about dealing with struggles in this life. You get the whole package. Verse 9. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again, death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. This just came up before we started class. He died as, this, as our sufficient, all-sufficient sacrifice once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be dead to sin? This is out of the ESV, English Standard Version. But I think every other translation has very similar wording here. Dead to sin, you die to sin. It means you have no obligation to sin anymore, like you used to. Because before Christ, we just, we didn't even think about it. We just sinned. Like Paul says, I didn't even realize I was coveting until I learned the commandments to do not covet. And then he looked back and he thought, I've been coveting a lot for a long time. I need to change that. So we're not, when we say we die to sin, those chains are off. I'm not obligated to this master anymore. We can say, he's not the boss of me anymore. That's come up recently. So we die to sin, just like uh, the analogy of the wife whose husband dies. She's no longer married to him because... He has died. So that, that bond is now dissolved. She's not obligated to do something for him or stay faithful to him. He's dead. And so we die to sin. Our obligations to it are gone. It used to be our master, but not anymore. And so, by contrast, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, let's see here. Through verse 14... So let's go to the notes quickly and then just recap before we get too far ahead. And I'll go through the notes as far as verse 14. So Romans 6, we went through, I think we began today in, let's see, what was it? I'll just start at verse, well, where it says the old self. We get this idea now that, and Paul uses this terminology, he uses the terms... Similar to slavery, he calls us slaves to sin. We were enslaved to sin. Uh, we were in bondage other places. Uh, the chains of sin, those kind of things. We, he paints a picture of literal, we're in bondage. We're in captivity. We cannot leave without help. But our new nature uh, is opposed to that sinful flesh. Verse 8 through 11 <clears throat> talks about how Christ died to sin in two senses in regard to sin's penalty. He met the legal demands that sin, that sin demands upon us because what does the, the Bible say in Romans 6.23 right here? The wages of sin is death. Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will in, in a few moments. The wages of sin is death, and so that's what you need to pay because of what you've earned by sinning. So he died uh, in that sense. He paid that bill for us. And number two, in regard to sin's power, he, he broke the power of sin over us because we belong to him, and now he's our master. Our, this, the sin of the world, of our flesh, is now, no longer our master. We have a new master. 
the chains have been broken. We sing those songs, the chains have broken, or, um, you know, break every chain. These, this is what it's referring to, the chains of sin that held us down all the, until we met Christ. And he gives us freedom. And we're freer now than ever before. And so death or sin no longer rules the believer. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And we're talking about that, talking about how the dog who sees a steak or a, or a chunk of broccoli is always going to eat the steak because his nature is bound to do that just because that's how God made a dog. He'd rather eat steak than broccoli. And so we're like that dog. We tend to choose those sinful things until we meet Christ and he shows us the way and he shows us this is sin. This is not pleasing to your new master, God Almighty. And so then we, he changes our nature. When would a, that's, and the Bible says, can a leopard change its spots? It's the same idea. And it talks about, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? It's the same idea. You can't change who you are, your nature. It's by your nature, literally. The leopard can't be striped one day because he feels like it. And, and the analogy is, he's, we're not going to be holy one day, purely holy one day, because we decided to, and then back to sinful, and then have our spots on again, and then go to stripes. No, we are spotted leopards, leopards until he changes us. Until then, our will is in bondage. And number three is a good point here. Is his death will never need repeating. And that did come up uh, just in our pre-class conversation about how the Catholic Church views communion as opposed to the Protestant churches. Um, his death never needs repeating. He never has to be sacrificed again. His death on the cross once for all time was sufficient for everyone. And... I'm going to move this window up if I can. How can I do this? There we go. Okay. Uh, verse 12 through 14. It says, Sin gained its power by using the law. Verse 12 says, Let's see. I'm trying to find it. I don't think it was verse 12 there. It was, might have been 14. It says, the idea is that sin gained its power. It says uh, sin increased because of the law. It doesn't mean that we were sinning anymore because the law came to us. It meant that our consciousness of us sinning increased. Like Paul said, I was coveting all the whole time. I just didn't know I was sinning until Jesus showed me this is sin. So that's how our consciousness of our sin increased. The Bible says that there where was sin in the world before, from Adam to Moses. How do we know that? First of all, common sense. But secondly, he relies on the fact that there was death from Adam to Moses. Well, what are the wages of sin? Death. So you don't have to look at a, uh, the Minnesota state statutes to be able to break one of the laws. We don't know all those laws, but we can still break them. So the sin exists whether you know the law or not. Our consciousness and our awareness of it increases. And it's interesting, and you have to or say it's important to understand that the law can only condemn. It doesn't save you. It just shows you your sin. It's grace that saved, saves. You can't follow the law and, and put your faith or hope of salvation in your doing that. First of all, because you can't do it. It's impossible. I mean, you might be able to follow it for a little while, but we all know 
uh, it's impossible. And even by the time you decided to start following the law, you've already got all those sins you've already committed. It can't save you. The law cannot save you. It's grace that saves. But we fulfill the law by grace through faith. What does that mean? We fulfill the law by having, putting our faith in Christ because he actually did fulfill the law. That's how, so he adopts us into that, and that's our inheritance. We're inheriting his work his, and his benefits from it. Okay, now we'll move back to the text, verse 15. All right, this is over here. The heading says, From slaves to, of sin to slaves of God. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Again, he's saying what the anticipated response might be. Well, so again, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And he says, absolutely not. Once again, the, he, wants, he knows this is going to be a sticking point for some people who hear this for the first time. Oh, so there's grace which is more powerful than sin, so I can just keep sinning. No, he says that is not how it works. Verse 16, don't you know? That if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. He's saying if you offer yourselves to follow a master, you're going to be a decent follower of that, ma follower of that master because you've made, you've uh, kind of by your own desire followed him. And we, by our own sinful desires, don't even know that we're following a specific master uh, of sin. We just, we just are. We come out that way. And so we follow him, uh, this, this uh, mythical master, which is sin. Our nature, we follow that master. But if we offer ourselves as obedient to slaves to the Lord, that leads to righteousness because everything else leads to death. Verse 17, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And we have to remember, Paul's speaking to believers. <clears throat> he wrote this letter to the believers in Rome, the saints in Rome. That's why he can say to the people who are hearing these words, you used to be slaves of sin. We used to be that way. You obeyed, and it says, from the heart. That's a big difference, because you can obey the law outwardly, but not inwardly. The Pharisees were really good about doing that. They were told that the outside of their cups were, were clean, but the insides were, were wicked. The inside of their, their hearts were wicked. They looked really holy on the outside. But here, Paul makes that distinction. He says, you obeyed from the heart. And he just got done talking about how circumcision is not an outward thing. It's really a circumcision of the heart that matters. It didn't matter that Abraham wasn't circumcised. He was still saved because of faith, because of his heart position toward God. And he's, he's telling the Romans, you did this. You, you obeyed from the heart. The pattern of teaching which you were handed over. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, again, we're released from the bondage, this terminology. We get the idea in our minds now. You became enslaved to righteousness. So now we're a slave to righteousness. Nine, verse 19, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. 
He says, just as you, off, as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves. Other translations say the members of your body. We use a lot the parts of our body, which is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We use the parts of our body a lot of times to sin. We use our hands to sin, the people that uh, were before Christ. But even though we're in Christ, we still sin. We might use our hand to, you know, steal something. We use our mouth to, to lie. You know, we use different parts of our bodies to... Uh, to sin in sexual ways. And he says, it's important what you do with your body. It's important to the Lord because it's his temple now. So you used to do different things with your body. He's in the same verse or the verse before he says, it's a hard thing, but don't think what you do with your body is not important either. That's important. He says, now make those members of your body also serve the Lord. And that will result in righteousness. And sanctification, sanctification means becoming holier as over time. Literally, it means uh, to be set apart for a holy use. And so we want to set apart our bodies for the holy reason of uh, glorifying the Lord in our actions. Verse 21, for when you were slaves to sin, again, we see this terminology, you were free with regard to righteousness. And this means... Again, you had no obligation to be righteous. When you were slaves to sin, you didn't care about being righteous. You were not under that obligation because you really didn't care. Verse 21, so what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? Think about it. That's a really cutting question. He says, well, how'd that go for you? What do you have to show for it? And we look back and we see a trail of destruction behind us and we think, yeah, that, that didn't really work out very well. The fruit of our sinful past. Not pretty. Even, and then he lays into it, into them, uh, the second part of verse 21. He says, the outcome of those things is death. And we have to say, amen, it's true. Because the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn in the end. Verse 22, but now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. And here's the famous passage, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's really showing us a, a snapshot here of a slave being set free. It's a beautiful picture. I think sometimes we take for granted our salvation. You know, I grew up in children's church, and I grew up that way. I grew up always in church, and my family was always somehow involved with church, and so I never really had that come-to-Christ moment in my 20s or 30s. I just grew up that way. Of course, I, you know, I can remember a, a kind of a time where I really believed that I made my faith my faith and not just my mom and dad's faith. But... To be set free as a slave is a, a beautiful picture. You might have that picture in your mind for, of what happened to you. There's nothing like it. So Paul's showing us this is how bad you were. There was no way out. And now you're free. So that's Romans 6. We're going to go through the notes here. Uh, where are they? There they are. 
Okay, verse 15 through 23. Past slavery to sin, new slavery to righteousness. So now that we're set free from sin, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're not just a free agent anymore. We're still a slave. And he and I use this word slave because it's in the text. And it's the fourth, uh, right here, I'll point I guess I have a big screen I can point to. Right here, you can't really see it. It's kind of blurry up on the screen. But that says doulos. It's the Greek word that... Some Bibles translate bondservant. Some Bibles translate servant. But the word is slave. And so he's showing us we're not just free now to do whatever we want. We are someone's. We belong to someone. We belong to Christ. We're told that we were, we're not our own. We were bought with a price. We were ransomed. We were redeemed. Someone paid our price. So we're not just our own th- doing our own thing. We used to be slaves to sin, a master that kills only. But now we're a slave to Christ, and he brings life to us, and he's a good master, and righteousness and holiness. Sin no longer has a claim upon us, and so Paul says, why would you even entertain it anymore? It's like thinking of, we talked about a dog earlier, if you think of a dog who's in a kennel or a cage, and it's locked up, the dog can't get out. It's just so easy for us to go up and just open the latch, and then the dog comes out and he's free for a little while or runs around. And then maybe nighttime comes and you put him back in the kennel and you lock it. It's easy for you to open it, but he cannot open it. It's impossible for that dog to open that latch. So he, Paul, in this sense, it's like thinking of us being that dog in that kennel and the owner coming by the master and opening the latch and he doesn't like being in the kennel. And the door's open and the dog stays in the kennel. The, the owner might say, well, Go out. It's, it's open. You don't have to sit in there. You don't like sitting in there. I've opened it for you. Why are you staying in there? It's smelly and it's dirty. Paul's saying that to us. Why, why wallow in that? You're, you're free from sin. You can not sin anymore. You can decide at least as much as we can in our earthly you know, uh, fallenness with the help of the Spirit. We can say no to sin at least sometimes. Don't go back to it. Why entertain it? Don't, you know... Sanctify yourself from them. Clean up your relationships. Find new friends. Those types of things. New believers have an innate and compelling desire to know and obey God's word. This doesn't just happen because you have the same master, uh, Mr. Sin before. If you're a new creation in Christ, he purchased you with his blood and now you're his. And if you do something where you used to do it before and you used to enjoy it and indulge in it and it was sinful and never bothered you before, now when you're his, you do it again, you're going to know about it. He's going to tell you about it in your heart. And it's not going to feel good anymore. And you're going to say, you know, this doesn't feel the same anymore. I don't even like how this feels anymore. Why am I doing this? You might do it for a while out of habit. But after a while, he's saying, you're mine, you can't be doing this. And he will get a hold of your heart about that. So I'll read First Peter, our reference here, chapter 2. If I type it in. 1 through 3. So First Peter 2, 1 through 3. Peter says, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Verse 2, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by, by it you may grow up in your salvation if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Infants, they can't talk. They can't say, I want milk. 
All they can do is cry, you know, and, and just kind of make a ruckus until you feed them and then they're happy. They know they want that milk. And we're like new babes in Christ when we come to Jesus. We're interested in him. We, we just have an, an inner yearning for him and his word and what it means to be a Christian. And when we look back at, at the notes here, I lost them one second here. There it is. New believers have an innate and compelling desire to know and obey God's word that they never had before. What, what's that all about? Where did that even come from? You can't manifest that out of your sinful state because you don't want to follow God in your sinful state. But when he changes your heart, he changes your desires. Now you want, some, you want that. Oh, that sounded really good. That sounded like freedom. I need that. And you want that. Your desire changed because you're a new creation in Christ. And you have a new master. Uh, back to the notes. Um, always used, uh, this word doulos, meaning slave in Greek, it's always used in the context of being owned by, belonging to, and being wholly subordinate to one's master. That all sounds like things a Christian does, or that we should be doing. Our Savior and Master possesses sovereign authority over those whom He saved. He's our Master. He's our Lord. That's what Lord means. We, we use these words a lot and kind of breeze over them, but Lord means Master, sovereign Master. He's, he has uh, saved the redeemed by virtue of their salvation are obliged to obey as those who have been bought with a price and therefore are not their own. Got a few verses here. I'll just read through them. Oh, there it is. Acts 20, 28. Some of these hopefully will sound familiar. Acts 20, 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church, which is the gathering of believers, with his own blood. If you buy something, that's yours. You own it. If you buy it outright, you got the title in hand. You're holding the deed to the property. You own it because you purchased it. This is a simple idea. Throughout all of human history, we understand that. So he uses this well-understood idea to, to show us our relationship to him now. He's not our partner. He's not our you know, buddy, ultimately, he owns us as a master owns a slave. In this day and age, we have, you know, that, that word slave has carried a, a really evil connotation for the last, you know, few couple hundred years. It's always been an evil thing. But it's the truth of what Paul wrote and Peter wrote. And so we just have to understand this is the idea here. But he's a good master. Like no other human slave master would be, he's the good master. He provides, he cares, he loves, he even dies for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. It says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Same idea. We're not our own. 
Don't think you can do whatever you want and not hear about it from the Spirit in your heart. You were purchased. And lastly here for the reference, 1 Peter 1, 17. It says, If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to one, each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. You weren't bought with gold coins or anything. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He's saying that we, we weren't just purchased at the stock market this afternoon with gold and silver, but with the blood of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Son of God on earth. So we should take this seriously. Don't take our salvation lightly. You know, it's, a, it's an immeasurable gift. And then here it says, spiritual death is a paycheck for every man's sin. I like that, I, that, that picture, that idea. A paycheck is what you earn. Spiritual death is a paycheck for every man's sin. Here's what you earn. It's a death certificate. It's what we've all earned because of our sin. But eternal life is a free gift God gives undeserving sinners like us who believe in his son to do what he said he would do. He promised to resurrect us on the last day if we believe in him. It's a pretty good trade-off. It just shows us God's love and mercy for his children. And just a quick note about that word sanctification. That's a, a very important doctrine in the Christian church. Again, it means to be set aside for a holy purpose, sanctify to be becoming holier, to becoming more conformed into the image of Christ. <clears throat> Just an, an excerpt from the Westminster Shorter Catechism here. It says, sanctification is, and this is not scripture, it's just a rendering of the church fathers. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin. Don't you feel that in your Christian life? We're enabled more and more. We have ups and downs, and you know, but hopefully... Our trajectory shouldn't, as we, let's say we're, we're low on the scale and, and then we're kind of going downward in our sin, delving deeper, deeper into sin. And then we meet, meet Jesus, we meet Christ, and then we kind of take an upturn in our holiness. And we go up a little bit and then we kind of stumble. And we kind of go up and up and then we stumble again. But we should be on an upward trajectory at some point getting holier. We're not going to be at 100% holy our whole lives. But it should be, there should be a change in direction on the upward axis as we become more and more sanctified. That's why it says here, and are enabled more and more, that means ongoing basis, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. It is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming us in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. does not mean that sin is instantly eradicated, but it is also more than a counteraction in which sin is merely restrained or repressed without being progressively destroyed. It's not just held back for a little while. We're progressively destroying it in our lives. Sanctification is a real transformation, not just the appearance of one. People are going to notice that you're different, that you're more like Jesus, if it's, if it's real. Sometimes people are two different people around their Christian friends and their family, you know, or their, their Christian friends and their unbelieving friends. They're just they're two different people. But the real person will see a, a true change. 
One of those groups is going to notice a change. Maybe you're really who you really are with your friends that don't go to church and they don't believe in Jesus, and that's who you really are. And then you put on a face in church. I don't know many people who are truly Christians and put a face on with their, I mean, and that's who they really are. But they're, I guess they're in both camps. The point is, one of those groups is going to say, you're different now. What, what happened? What changed? But if you're integral, you are who you always are, uh, and people are going to notice, this is a godly person. I see what they do. I see them when they don't think I'm watching. And I can see Jesus in that person's life. It's not just an appearance of sanctification on the outside. It's actually inside. So it's a real thing, and, and God helps us to enable us to say no to sin where we couldn't beforehand, before we met Christ. And so we owe him all the glory for that. Okay, that's Romans 6. How does that sit with everybody? And how are we doing? Questions, comments? Anything new? doesn't contribute to a, the idea of being free. But the truth of the matter is that the kind of uh, master-slave relationship, I think Jesus identified, it it's a different than we think, than it's being represented here. Because he said to the apostles that, you know, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Right. And slaves have no right to know their master's business. Right. So that's, it's, a, it's a relationship difference, too. But if we just leave it as a, a, tip, a, you know, a typical slave-owner uh, scenario, that wouldn't, it's not very accurate because God brings us into, you know, I would say a degree of friendship, really, right? Yeah, he's the good master that, yeah. again, provides everything we would ever need and more. He dies for us. Uh, he doesn't rule over us with a heavy hand. Right. You know, he's always there right. to catch us when we fall. Yeah. It's it's nothing like this the which is really the I idea think that critically we have. important a concept to communicate because <laughs> if you're just left with this he owns you. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't it, your flesh kind of goes, "Wait a minute." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because we go back to what we remember in our culture. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And we hear that word and that's why I think the translators Used words like bond servant because I probably I think they probably thought this might be a distraction and you know these translations you know came maybe a hundred years ago two hundred years ago when it was so much closer to slavery they think right. if we put the word slavery in it this is what they're going to think and that's not the idea so bond servant might be more toward you know but we still have these translations with us which are really good translations. Uh, you know I'm going to look up a, a really recent translation and see what it said real quick. Let me look up. Yes. Is I heard that term when I was little, saying we own you, and that was when I was living on the reservation with my family, Native Americans. Who said it? Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Oh, I, oh, interesting. Yeah, and they said we own you, so therefore you have to stay on the reservation in your area. So every, my grandfather thought we were sinners wow. for some reason. But didn't even know why. We had why. our own area. And reservations were developed. 
Mm-hmm. And people stayed in those. They feared leaving because right. they didn't know what would happen to them. Wow. And I left. Well, good you for know. you. And my grandfather was so worried. Yeah. Wow. Because uh, this is what they were brought up with. Right. You know, that <clears throat> because of the sin of maybe fighting or they were put in an area and asked to stay. Right. Interesting. I never heard that perspective. You see very little Native Americans, or you see very few Native Americans leaving the reservation. Still, they probably still have some of that. The old people, the elders. Yeah. You know, they stay. Oh, yeah. Because of fears. It may be the younger ones that move on. Wow, I never heard that. That's why they call it first generation off, second generation off. They're keeping track. Wow. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's like mental or psychological yeah, bondage. You, yes. you can't even myself, I'm off the reservation, but I still have a card that tells me I have to renew it every year like a green card, yet I was born in America. Right. That's like having chains on that you can't see. Right. You put that's those chains on. To, yeah. Yeah, similar. That you are a slave. In your mind. In my mind. Yeah. But yet, I have to report every year. Right. And they tell me if I can stay out again or go back. Oh, really? They have oh, the yeah. say. They Interesting. That's another way of, that's another, I guess, example of bondage. Mm-hmm. Because we walk around and we don't have literal chains on us as we sin before we know Christ. But, but our minds are in bondage. And our, our heart is always, you know, in bondage because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what the dog does. I'm going to always go to this side and, and eat the steak or, or sin. You know, most times I'm because of who I am. When Christ comes in, he breaks those mental chains off and right. says, you can see the truth now. That's not good for you. Don't do that thing. Do what I want you to do. I'm your good master. Yeah, leave. If you want to leave, you can leave. Right, it's but freedom. But you have this fear. Yeah, fear is no, no good, but it's a very powerful tool. It is a powerful tool. That's too bad. Can I read um, Romans 6, verse 13 in the footnote? Yes. It says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And the footnotes are offer, put yourselves in the service of perhaps also echoing the language of sacrifice, parts of your body, all the separate capacities of your being. Right. Everything we do, everything we think, all the plans we make, you know, that's all part of us, part of our idea of what we are here for. Some people call it your destiny or, you know, who, my legacy. Um, that's all something I, we as humans, as fleshly beings want to hold on to or promote or build up. But he says, use all those things, those drives that you have uh, for, the, for me. And it'll, it'll cause you to be righteous if you do it according to my will. Not according to your sinful past, that old man who should be dead. Keep him dead. So your mind can be a member, you know, your thoughts, your brain, you know, you're thinking these things. Well, the Bible says to hold every thought captive. You know, you have a bad thought. You think, you know, hey, I can't, I can't you know, put uh, action behind that thought. That's a bad thought. And just kill it. Whereas before, you might have just said, oh, let's see where these, this goes. You know, 
Uh, he says it'll lead to death, ultimately, you keep doing those things. So this idea is pretty strong, this idea of slavery, bondage to sin, and all those types of ideas. Um, where are my glasses? I can't go. Okay. Well, i got a clock right up here. Uh, let's see. So Romans 6, I think we um, can probably talk a little bit about Romans 7 uh, because this has to do, of course, with sin. Remember we talked way in the beginning about how the overview of Romans, the first few chapters are about the problem. You know, man is sinful and we suppress the truth and, you know, why we need a Savior, basically. And what a real uh, saved person looks like, not just one outwardly, one inwardly, circumcisions of the heart. It's a faith thing. It's not an outward thing. Uh, Abraham was saved before he was circumcised and all that. So now he, he's walked us through, uh, and it says, you know, here in Romans 6, oh, I'm, I'm in First Peter. But in Romans 6, it talks about how the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he tells us it's, it's his gift. We cannot earn it. And so now we have this idea, uh, according to Romans, you know, we've gone through this up to this point. Now we're believers. But we still have sin. What do we do with that? And so Romans 7 is going to answer this question or tackle it. And uh, we'll go for a few minutes here and, until we need to end. We're not going to finish Romans 7 today, but we'll get into it. Romans 7, another famous chapter. I keep saying that. I think I have to stop saying that because... To someone, somewhere, every chapter in the Bible is a famous chapter. So let's just call it Romans 7. It is what it is. But people refer to this a lot because it's, it's a daily struggle, and it should give us a lot of peace, what Paul says here. Because I'll tell you one thing. The Lord does not want us as believers, as children of God, who's he, whom he has purchased, to live in, with shame and guilt every day. He does not want that for us because he's taken care of all that. Okay, so it says the believer's relationship to the law. Let me make sure that this is showing up correctly. No, here we go. Okay, so verse 1, Romans 7. He says, Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, he's speaking to Christians, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, not, this is Jewish Christians, <clears throat> that the law is Lord over a person as long as he lives. Now here he's going to give us that example of dying to sin. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of the marriage. So then if she's joined to another man while her husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she is joined to another man, she is not an adulteress. She has no obligation to the dead uh, husband. She's not doing anything wrong. So then if he, oh, where am I? Uh, verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you could be joined to another. We used to serve the law, and we would break the law. And by that, we have trespassed on the law, and trespasses are sins. So we served the thing that uh, only showed us our sin, and so we serve sin. But now we have died to that master. We are not obligated to that standard anymore if we are in Christ. And so he says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. That's how you did it. So that you could be joined to one another, to the one who was raised from the dead to bear fruit of God. What are the Christians called in Scripture? But among other things, the body of Christ. He's, at, he's the head. We're the body. 
We're doing his work in the world. We're his hands and feet, sometimes people say. We're loving others with the love of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And so he says, so we, not only so we can be free from this master, but that we can be joined to each other. And Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, how we are uh, doing different things within the body, but we're still one body. He says, you are each individually part of it, but all one body. You see how we work together. Some people do this and some people do that, but we're all one body, and that body is called the body of Christ. So we can bear fruit to God. That's the point. And we can glorify him until we see him. Verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law were, the, were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Well, what is a, If you tell a kid, I'm always using this example because it's just my idea of a young uh, person is the same idea of uh, an unbeliever. Uh, I'm sure there's many more analogies. But I guess you could use it for adults. If you tell adults, if I come up to you guys and I have an envelope up here, and all I'm going to say is, all I'm going to say is, hey, guys, don't look in this envelope, okay? And I'll just leave it here. And then I leave the room. Who, is anybody looking at the envelope? Maybe somebody's going to look in the envelope. Someone's going to be tempted to look in the envelope, right? But if you have kids in here, they're definitely going to look in the envelope, you know? We are more sanctified than the kids, right? But the kid, if you say, I've seen this on, uh, on TV. They had a study where they had uh, two kids in a room, or maybe one kid in the room, and the person comes in and says, I'm going to give you a, a test in about five minutes. Let me go make a phone call. I'll be right back. I'm going to leave a marshmallow right here in a plate. Uh, if you don't eat the marshmallow, when I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow. But if you eat it, you won't get a second one. So they, they leave. The whole point is to see if the kids can eat the marshmallow. And they all ate the first marshmallow. They couldn't wait. It's right there in front of them. Uh, by the same token, if you say, okay, I'm going to leave the room. I know there's marshmallows on the table, but they're not for you. Don't eat the marshmallow. You know, literally, they're putting six inches away from his face. So they leave, and uh, you can see it's funny because the kid's, like, looking around, making sure they're really gone. Don't hear anything. I'll just take one, you know. And, and he eats it. So it's just how, how our, uh, our natural sinful desires, like Paul is saying here, when we're in the flesh, the sinful desires aroused by the law What's the law say? Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Well, we do those things. And we don't like seeing, having somebody tell us not to. Before we're in Christ, I always like to make the distinction. Our natural man, our old man, wants those things. He wants that marshmallow. And as soon as somebody isn't in a room, I'm going to take it. Because we're just bound by that, those desires. Novels have changed. And he says... If you do those things, they were active in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. They only lead to death. Not just physical death, understand. It's spiritual death. Uh, away from Christ, you're not in Christ. You're, you have that trail of destruction behind you. Verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. Again, the verbiage, the, the, the wording, you're released, you're free, the chains have fallen off. Why? Because we have died to what controlled us. It's a heavy burden to try to follow all those laws. And it wasn't just the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. <clears throat> That's the moral law. That's, that encapsulates in a nutshell the holiness of God, His highest standard. And we can't even meet the Ten. There's 613 laws 
that they would impose upon the people. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees added more laws. It's a heavy burden to try to, to do all that. And so either you think after a while that you have done it, and now you're spiritually proud, you're self-righteous, which is a sin because it's pride. Or you, you just think, I just give up because I'm, I'm in despair. There's no way I can do it. So either side is bad. The law must be fulfilled. You cannot fulfill it. Now what? I need help. That's where Christ comes in. He says, let me do it for you. And by your faith that I have done it for you, that I'll give it to you, you have it. Uh, but now we have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us, so that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code. Now it's by the Spirit we live. You know, if you do something wrong now that you're in Christ, you know about it. You know you did something wrong. Even if you didn't know, you didn't read in the Torah of the actual rule you broke or the Minnesota statutes, the rule you broke, you just know because he's within you and he's reminding you, I shouldn't have done that. I could have done that better. I got to go ask that person to forgive me. Now we live by the Spirit. And that's a strong law. You'll know that that's written in black and white on your heart. Yeah, I did that. That was wrong. Okay. 740. This is the this is a good part. So I wanna I wanna hit I'm gonna read I guess uh, come back next week and start with this passage, but I'll read it here first so we can kind of stew on it for uh, the week. Verse seven of Romans seven. <clears throat> Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. He's not saying throw the law out the window. The law is a good thing because it shows us God's holiness and a standard. He says, Certainly I would not have known sin except through the law, for indeed I would not have known what it means to desire something that's coveting belonging to someone else if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from the law, sin is dead because you don't know you're doing it. If you're outside of Christ, you don't know of God's law, you've never heard the gospel, you don't even, you're just doing life. So sin, the idea of it doesn't really have a hold in your mind because you haven't seen Jesus yet. Verse 9, And I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment, sin became alive, and I died. When he learned God's law, he saw his sin as a living thing in, in himself, in his flesh, and I died. His flesh, he was condemned at that point. He realized, I'm a dead man. So I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life brought death. He thought, well, all I have to do is follow these laws. Like the rich young ruler says, Jesus, what do I have to do to be born again? And he says, well, do the commandments. He says, I did them all. Just the, the audacity to think you have fulfilled the law. He says, well, I thought that was what I was supposed to be doing. He says, no, it only brings death. And so this is a conscious... The light goes on. The Holy Spirit opens his eyes and he realizes, oh, that's not what it's about. Uh, verse 11, For sin, seizing the opportunity through the law, the commandment, deceived me, and through it I died. He realized, I'm a dead man. This doesn't give me salvation. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. As it came from God. Verse 13, He's making this, he's clearing it up for the Jews now. 
Verse 13, did that which is good, the law, then become death to me? He's, he's walking them through it now slowly. Absolutely not. But sin, so that it would be shown to be sin, produced death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Again, the law is a mirror showing us just how holy we are. I don't even have to say how sinful we are. I can just say how it is. The law shows us how holy we are. Well, how holy are we compared to the sin of the law, or compared to the, the law, not very holy? Just think of it. When's the last time you, and just go through the, uh, the commandments, you know, we think, well, have you ever lied? Have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever hated your brother in your heart? Like Jesus says, if you've done that, you've, you've murdered him in your heart. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you really honored your father and mother through your life? You know, all those things, and we can just, we've already all failed. And so, the sin show, or the, the commandment shows us how holy we are. <clears throat> and he says, but sin, so that it would be shown to be sin, produced death in me through what was good. I thought it was doing a good thing. I thought I could actually fulfill that law. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I'm unspiritual, <laughs> he says. Sold into slavery to sin, for I don't understand what I'm doing. Didn't we feel this at one point? For I do not do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. This is a Christian saying, why am I doing these things? I shouldn't be doing these things. I hate doing these things, these sinful things. Why do I keep lying? Why do I keep doing whatever it might be? I know I shouldn't. Verse 16, but if I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. Right, because I don't want to lie, but I know lying's a good law. So I'm agreeing the law is good, but I, I break it, and I don't want to break it. How do we reconcile that in our mind? It's like we're going crazy. But if I do what I want, I don't want, verse 16, I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, but now it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. I'm still in this fleshly body. It still desires things that I shouldn't be partaking in. My spirit is new. My body's the old man. And it still has its desires, which I have to keep at bay. Verse 17, uh, is no longer me doing it, but the sin that lives in me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me, that is my flesh. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. I want to be spiritually pure, but I just can't. I can't. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. He's, when he says I, he's meaning the new man. I, my spirit is new in Christ. I want to be like Jesus. I'm saved. I get it. I just have a struggle with not sinning. We're just going to end up going right through 7, but we'll hit it again next week real quick. Verse 21. So I find the law that <clears throat> when I want to do good, evil is present with me. It's always there. Temp, ready to tempt, ready to pounce in a weak point in our Christian walk. 
Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want to do what he wants me to do. I really do. Verse 23, but I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. He sees this war within himself, a different law in his body than in his heart. And he sees himself as he is, verse 24, wretched man that I am. This is Paul the Apostle, the greatest evangelist Christianity's ever had. He says, wretched man that I am. Other places he calls himself the, the foremost of sinners. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Sounds like he's in despair. But thank God for verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, his fleshly body, serve the law of God with my mind, or his spiritual body, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Only Christ Jesus. But even though we're saved, we're still in this fleshly body with its desires. And we have to understand that's going to happen until we die and get our new body and the perishable will go away and we'll have imperishable bodies. We'll have righteous bodies. We'll have new bodies without sin because of Christ. So that day is coming. And he says there's no other way but Jesus Christ. Praise God. We'll do the notes next time. Uh, last words from anyone? Thoughts or ideas? Anything? Well, we are almost halfway through Romans. 16 chapters. And we'll recap next week on verse 7, or on chapter 7. Let's pray. Once again, dear Lord Jesus, every time we go through a passage of Scripture, a book we've read before, you show us something new, and I pray that you continue to do that, and I thank you for that. And not only that we might know something new, but we that we learn how to apply it in different ways in our lives, and that we can take it into a conversation perhaps this week with someone, uh, bring these verses back to mind, to the forefront of, of our minds to... Uh, encourage someone who might be in despair over sin, even though they're Christian, that we can encourage them and say, you have hope in Christ. Every Christian goes through the struggle with sin, but we should not lose hope. We should not live with guilt or shame because you've paid the price for us. And so, Lord, keep us until next time. Provide for all of our needs, whether it be physical or financial or anything in between. We love you, Lord. Until next time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.